Have you ever had to say no to your kids? It's not easy, is it? Some of us grew up in a, in a no kind of environment, and we said, when I grow up, I will not say no to my kids like was said no to me. I'll always try to find a way to say yes in some way. So how's that working for you? If you ask your kids, how's it working for them? What would they say? Would they say you never say no? Sometimes it's not so cut and dried whether we say yes or no, right? Let me run through some scenarios. You're somewhat new at the company, and the boss has asked you to plan and host a company party in your backyard for a client that she needs to impress, a client whose company is making a mark in the sustainable energy business and has been openly opposed to the fossil fuel industry. Your family has felt your angst, especially about the decor especially about the serving table centerpiece. Your five-year-old son wants to help, and he heard you say something about gas guzzlers, and he has the perfect idea. He goes to his room, comes back with his favorite toy, a Christmas present from his favorite uncle, a huge remote control gas guzzling monster truck. Here, mommy, use this as the centerpiece of your serving table. How do you get out of that? without saying no in some way. As you're busy preparing appies, appies in the kitchen, your four-year-old daughter decides she wants to help. She goes to the butcher block knife holder, pulls out the biggest, longest, sharpest knife, and says, I'll help, mommy. That would be a quick no, right? Dad, your six-year-old, has been fascinated with driving since she was four years old, like, like forever. She's been begging you to drive, and you've been putting her off, trying to say no without saying no. And one day, she runs ahead of you on your way to the car. She jumps in behind the wheel and says, Daddy, today it's my turn. Yes or no? Back when we were kids in the country, there was an easy yes to that, right? You put her on your lap, let her steer with your hand at the bottom of the wheel, right? But for some dumb reason, they don't allow us to do that anymore in the city. No matter how hard we try to say yes, sometimes a good parent has to say no. If you're a school teacher, it doesn't take too long to discern that there are some kids who just might not have had no said to them enough or in the right way. Or perhaps a child who has clear signs of mental, emotional health challenges, unable for no fault of his own to process no well. We're looking this season at the life of the great King David, God's king, with a heart for God. We're going through his story, not just to learn history, but to, to learn to see history as his story, God's story, the authoritative record of how to live well in this story of the God who created it all, the God who calls us into his story, who directs us in living in that story, who is working this story toward his conclusion and wants us in it. We're looking at the life of David through the lens of one of his own statements in the book of the Psalms. A statement we've said is, is like a life motto for him. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me, ahead of me, because he is at my right hand, at the place of authority over me. I will not be shaken. Not be shaken. That, that is what we want to experience, to feel, isn't it? That's what we'd like to be known for, isn't it? 
David's story is recorded primarily in the two books of Samuel in, in the Older Testament. The first part of the Bible, the pre-Jesus part of God's story. They're, they're called the books of Samuel because Samuel, the prophet leader at the, of the time, is the kingmaker. He anoints Saul, the first king, the people's choice, even though he wasn't God's choice because sometimes God, as a loving father, allows us to go our own way even though it's not his own way, even though our own way will not lead to the peace, fulfillment that we think it will. And, and, and so, in the middle of the reign of Saul, Samuel anoints David, God's choice, as the king in waiting. The first book of Samuel is about Saul's reign, including those period when David is running from Saul, even though he's been anointed as king. Those years are finally over, and we are now in book two of Samuel, and David is on the throne. Take your Bible, your Bible app, if, or if you're live, at the bottom of the right corner of the screen is a Bible app there. Turn to the second book of Samuel, the ninth book in the Bible. The question we have as we go into this second book of Samuel is, will David be any different than Saul? How will David, the man after God's own heart, how will he lead differently than Saul? Well, right from the get-go, chapter 1, as Dave led us in seeing last week, we see a different kind of king. David does not begin his reign by saying, yes, finally Saul is out of the picture and it's my turn to show what I can do. No. How does David begin his reign? David led, or Dave last week led us in seeing that he begins with lament. Not lament the way we think about lament, being transparent and dumping out our feelings of frustration about things that are not going our way. Lament the way David does it and leads us in doing it well in many of his psalms is not about David. David laments that in the death of Saul, God's anointed one has been cut off and the name of God among the nations, among God's enemies is being mocked. The glory of God has become tarnished. Lament that does not become repent is not really full, complete lament at all. Saul is now gone and David wants to make sure it's not about him but about the God who is, the God who is overall, the God he has set and he sees before him. As the story moves on, we come to chapter 2, even after Saul is gone, it doesn't mean the Saul party is gone, and Saul is put on the throne, or David is put on the throne of Judah, the, the southern third of Israel. For another seven years, David is king, but just over Judah. He still doesn't have it all. In chapter 3 and 4 begin this way. In the beginning of chapter 3, we read, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And for two chapters, we read about the internal political battles for David to become king over all Israel. But even through all of these battles and the manipulating and the maneuvering, David does not see himself winning when Saul's supporters lose. And in chapter five, David becomes king over all of Israel, and he does three things. Number one, he conquers Jerusalem. He takes it from the Jebusites. Jerusalem, which will become Zion, the city of God, the capital city of God's rule over all the earth. And number two, 
he builds himself a big palace in Jerusalem. Of course, what else does a king do, right? We've got to see it, this in, in chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. He says, David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. He conquers Jerusalem. He builds himself a palace. And number three, after establishing his base, he wins a battle against, well, who else? The Philistines, just like he did against Goliath. It's very interesting, especially in light of what we'll see today, how David frames this victory, how the narrator in the story frames this victory. Chapter 5, um, beginning in verse 19, the Lord answered him, middle of verse 19, go, for surely I will deliver the Philistines in your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. Baal-perazim means the Lord who breaks out. David's not be shaken hope is finally paying off and becoming not be shaken experience. God is alive. God is on the move. A God outbreak is finally happening. And then, shockingly, in the two episodes we'll look at today, chapter 6 and chapter 7, David encounters two of the kind of experiences back to back that so easily knock us off our game and rattle us and, through, and throw off our not-be-shaken commitment. God says no. Not subtly, not definitively, or it's not subtly, but definitively. No. Two times to David, when by all appearances, David's heart, his motive, was right. So how do we handle it when God says no? When it seems like he keeps on saying no, especially when we think our motive was right, our desire was legitimate, God says no in all kinds of ways and at all kinds of times. But it seems to me that in these two chapters, we see the two overall answers to the question of why God says no. Why in the sense of the purpose God wants to achieve in us when he says no. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David wants to make sure that his leadership of God's people is all about setting God before, not just him, before them. Not just I have put the Lord before me, but we will put the Lord before us. That's a, that's a good thing, isn't it? And so David does the right thing. Chapter 6, verse 1. David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Able young men, who are these men? These are the men he's trained for and lead, led into battle. It's his team, the best and the brightest. He wants to show them and use them to show all of Israel how to do it right, how setting God before us begins. Verse 2, he and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name 
the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The ark. Remember the ark? We saw it exactly a year ago this week in the book of Joshua. As they, the ark of God went before them, splitting the Jordan River and allowing them to cross. The ark, as it was called, of the covenant of the Lord your God. A box of gold that God told them to make at Mount Sinai where he had met them. The ark that went before them, and as the priests carrying the ark stepped into the water, the waters parted and they walked through. The ark was, uh, was a rectangular wooden box, just over one meter long, and about three quarters of a meter wide and high, plated with gold. Inside the ark, on top of the ark, inside the ark and on top of the ark were some tangible uh, items that reminded them of the God who was among them, the God who called them, the God they served, and the God who was giving them himself. There was the tablets of stone inside on which the Ten Commandments were written. The God who prescribes how to follow and obey him for our good. The rod of Aaron was there, Moses' brother, symbolizing the God who presides, who rules and directs us in his way. It wasn't a human leader they trusted in, even Moses, Joshua, or now David. There was a jar of manna, the, the, the bread-type stuff that God provided for them in the wilderness as the God who provides through the journey. But not only providing sustenance, it's about the God who provides a way back. On the lid of the ark, between these two cherubim, regularly, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the blood was spilled from a sacrifice to symbolize the God who reconciles, who provides a way back. And the God who is present with them, this is the place where Moses met God. The ark, a box with two cherubs on top of it, with, with wings up, symbolizing two things, that this was the God who, as Isaiah says, is enthroned above the circle of the earth, whose glory fills the earth, and whose glory was so great and powerful, nobody could touch it. But the God who was also at the same time present with them to be their leader. This ark is not a good luck charm. It's not a spiritual magic box. It's a tangible symbol of everything God had done and would do for them, in them, through him. The ark and how they treated and handled the ark was to be a symbol of how they were putting the Lord always in everything before them. It's what David wants to declare and how he wants to start off his reign. Verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, Abinadab, which was on the hill. The house of Abinadab, how, how did the ark get to the house of Abinadab? Well, that takes us back to the days just before King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 4, in, in, in their fight against the Philistines, they had used the ark. They had used the ark to get a military win. They were using God, not surrendering to God. It didn't go well, and the Philistines steal the ark of God's presence, which doesn't go well for them either, although they get it in a way God's people don't. And, and so they return the ark to the city of Beth Shemesh, and, and, and these people are so happy because they think the ark of God will be a magical thing through which they can get God's blessing, but it doesn't go well for them either. 
but at least they draw the right conclusion. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And they say, get this thing out of here. And it ends up on the property of Abinadab. And the next thing God's people do, they say, this isn't working for us. We don't need the ark. We need a king. And they choose Saul. And from that time on, during the entire reign of Saul, the ark of the Lord is warehoused as a relic, stored but not touched, in whatever their version was of a sea can, or perhaps a, a, a little museum-type storage hut where it, where it became a tourist attraction, an artifact. But now, finally, David wants to bring back the ark of the covenant of the Lord their God, to visibly declare that the presence of God, the worship of God, is central to Israel and to his reign. Isn't that a good thing? Is that not the right thing to do? It is. Verse 3. In the middle of verse 3. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new ark with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was also walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. They're bringing the ark back to the center of it all. And they do it with, with joy. Verse 5, with cymbals, castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels. They're dancing with joy. God is once again at the center where he should be. And then God says, no, in a big way. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this, his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down. And he died there beside the ark of God. What does it say God did? We don't see it quite as well in some of our English translations. Using the same word as he used in chapter 5, it says God broke through. He broke out. It's very clear. Three times. It's very clear in the flow of the story. This is not... Uh, this is an outbreak of God against his people, just like his win over the enemies was an outbreak of God for his people. What's with that? Aren't they declaring God as sovereign, leader at the center? On the outside, they are. And they are doing it with, with worship, exuberant, expressive worship, aren't they? So how in the world did this go sideways? Well, first, let's get off the table what this does not say about God. This is not about God being arbitrary and unpredictable. What God did is very predictable. He was doing exactly what he said he would do. Oh, yes, God is unmanageable, but he's not unpredictable. Let's look a little more closely at this episode. How, how has David moved the ark of God? How has he treated the presence of God? On the face of it, it seems they're doing the right thing in the right way with worship, expressive, joyful worship. Well, he has done it with his men, his soldier leader men. 
Who had God said should handle the ark? The priests. And the priests alone, not the military leaders, not even the king. They set the ark on, on a new cart. Well, well that's, that's good thinking, right? They're treating it with respect, with reverence, making it special, aren't they? They're using the latest and the greatest and the best technology. But how had God said the ark was to be moved? By priests. Not even the king could move the ark. But even worse than that, they're moving the ark in exactly the same way the Philistines had moved the ark. What else happened? Uzzah and company were what? Verse 3, it says they were guiding the ark, leading the ark. Nobody guides the ark. The ark guides them. Go back to Joshua 3 and the crossing of the Jordan. In verse 6, when the cows pulling the ark stumbled and the cart jerked, Uzzah does what was clearly not to be done. He reaches out and touches the ark with human hands. Not even the priests who carried the ark touched the ark. They carried it with poles threaded through hoops so they would never touch the ark. So are they really worshiping as they move the ark? Worship, authentic worship, is a leadership issue. It's a declaration that I am living in, am living under, and I am living for God. That I am accepting his word for me and living under his leadership. I worked for a short time uh, on the management team in a government service. And the director of the department I worked in had a leadership trainer that he wanted all of his managers to be trained by. Uh, he, this, uh, this man had been the head trainer for all of Canada's military fighter pilots. He was a very colorful man, very insightful man, who was sort of bucking some of the management theories of the day, particularly the idea of authority, what authority means and how we use it. He was not at all advocating for a my way or a highway kind of leadership always holding up the authority card. And he articulated it well, how different styles were appropriate for different situations. But one thing he said has stuck with me. Not so much about leading people, but about God's leadership of me. He said, and he said it over and over again, authority only matters when we disagree. Ever thought about that? We can talk about team. We can talk about collaboration, and we should, but there will come times, times when we disagree, when someone has to call the shots. There are times when God says, no. I can, I can try to justify what I did, to frame what I did as the right thing from a right heart, but what if God disagrees? What if you are not doing it like he said? Clearly, it should be done. Am I really putting him before me? Have I really put him at my right hand? And God does what God does. God breaks through. There are so many messages God is sending them and us through this story. The God who is in control is not a God I can control. Even by doing the right things. 
So in so many ways, David's heart was right, and he's, he is doing the right thing, sort of. But God is reminding David that to put God before him, which I have to do if God is God, is, is to do things God's way. So easily and so quickly, we want to use God for our goals, and we can't use God for our purposes. Even if we have learned to use the language of God to frame our goals as God's purposes. We even do it in the way we pray. We think that if we say the right words and have what we think is the right heart and, and good goals, then, then God will answer by doing things my way. And when God says no, or at least doesn't say yes, doesn't give us what we want, we need to ask, am I authentically engaging God or am I trying to manage God? Not so we can get what we want, but simply to, to be a check on our heart. God's goal is to be glorified in us, through us, not to be used by us. And it's when God says no that our bent to managing God is exposed, isn't it? How is it exposed? Well, when we blame other people for blocking us from achieving the goals that God clearly has given us, the blessing God should be giving us. When we give up on God because we think he hasn't come through for us or when we justify things we do, even though they are clearly not what God intends for us. Because God loves me, he would not want me to feel bad, right? We so often use prayer to control, to manage God when it is the privilege God gave us to help us get out of the way of God, to, to, to give God an opportunity to do whatever he wants for his glory in and through us. That's why I hate that line when we say prayer works. It works? What do we mean by that? Prayer doesn't work. God works as we submit to him, as we surrender, as we release to him, which means recognizing his authority over it, over me. And we only really know we have surrendered to him by how we respond when he says no. Prayer should, first of all, change my heart. David moves through several phases of processing this no from God. First of all, he gets angry. We're not going to read it. We we'll, won't take time to read it. You can, you can read it for yourself. He knows that once again, other people have suffered because of his failure. It happens over and over again in David's leadership life. First of all, he's angry, verse 8. Who's he angry at? It, it, it's not really clear. We assume he's angry at God, but, but, but could it be more than that? You see, anger is an emotion that rises up inside of us, and we choose who we're going to target for our anger. We focus on the person we think caused it, but without thinking about what is really causing our anger. Is it because our goal has been blocked? Is, is David as angry with himself and his failure as he is at God? I would think so, because the second phase he goes through, verses 9 and 10, is fear. Fear of God. And now David is responding to the ark of God, the God of the ark, in a more appropriate way. God is not someone I can manage for my purposes in my way. And the third thing David does is also a good thing. He waits. Let's just take a time out here. Leave the ark where it is. And David pauses, and in this pause, he realizes that God is not really against him. He does want to bless his people. 
verse 12 of chapter 6, Now David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of, Ob of Obed-Edom, where the ark was, and everything he has because of the ark of God. And so David went again to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of God had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf wearing a leaded ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpet. Same way as they did it before with dancing and rejoicing and praise. David dances before God. First time, the dance was judged. The second dance is commended. In both cases, people are rejoicing. One of them is manufactured joy. One of them is authentic joy. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, couldn't we? David's wife, Michael, thinks he's an idiot. But her reaction exposes who she really is. Who is she called? Verse 16, the daughter of Saul. It's not even called David's wife. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She thinks David's a fool. Daughter of Saul. That's not just a statement about her lineage. That's a statement about her heart. She thinks David's a fool for dancing before the Lord. He's not, dan he's not doing what kings do. Kings have people dance before them. Kings act like gods. But David says, later on in the chapter, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You see, this is not talking about whether we should dance in worship, okay? It is about when any outward expression, singing, Raising hands, dancing is appropriate in worship. It's when I am using outward symbols to declare in new ways my surrender to God, to say yes to God, even when he seems to be saying no to me, because David tells us it's not about the outward form. David gets the lesson. It's not about using God, claiming from God, doing things for God. It's about humbling myself before God. David's audience is not cool people. His audience is God. David realizes that it's not the cool people who will get it. It's the slave girls, he says. They get humility. So what does this chapter teach us about when God says no? It's that God says no to give me an opportunity to say a deeper, more authentic, more comprehensive yes to him. Sometimes it might not be about a specific wrong action I've done. It may simply be about my heart. We are so quick to defend ourselves and say, my heart was pure, my heart was right, but, but there will always, always, this side of heaven, there will always be parts of my heart that are not fully aligned with God. Sometimes parts we're not aware of. 
Larry Crabb puts it this way, without trials, only spoiled brats would enter heaven, and that would turn heaven into hell. It's out of experiences like this that David learns to pray things like he does in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So in what way might God be wanting me to accept a no from him simply to declare that I will say yes to him fully, surrender to his leadership? What's the deeper yes that God is inviting you to declare by accepting a no from him? Is it a dream that you have, a desire, a demand? Is it a right that you think you're not getting? So David has learned his lesson. He's back to leading the people and putting God before him. And, and so we come to chapter 7. We're, we're just going to survey this one briefly, even though when it comes to the story God is writing in David, for David, through David, for us, this chapter is the center, the climax, the high point of David's story. And yet, even the high point of David's story comes from another time God says no. David has, has one more plan to lead the people in seeing God before them and putting God over them. He's, David has built this palace, as we saw in chapter 5, but in order that everyone will see that it's all about God, he needs to build just as nice a house for God, chapter 7, verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Well, that's a good perspective, isn't it? David goes to his pastor, Nathan the prophet. Samuel is dead and, and a new prophet is emerging, whom David is learning to trust and respect. And David tests his idea off Nathan. And Nathan says, what every pastor really honestly wants to say, they really do. He said, go for it. It's amazing. Yes. Verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead. Do it, for the Lord is with you. This is a no-brainer. It's as obvious as, as serving pancakes at a pancake breakfast. And David said, that's what I thought too. And then God says no. That night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go back, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with the, all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any one of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you now. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of earth. 
and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will also give you, David, rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your answers, sisters, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Well, we don't read this chapter very often, but this chapter is one of the mountain peaks, the high points of the story that God is writing. It's one of the core covenants of God, the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and Joshua, and now David. David, David, I love your heart, but that's not my plan. My plan is not for you to build me a house. You're not the guy for that. Now, we might think of several reasons, even though it might be in David's heart to do it, that he, that he just not might be the right guy, and, and several things God alludes to. David, your job, my calling for you, the best way you can bring glory to me is under my direction. Make this land a secure place for my people. David, that's your job, to build a palace. While you're doing that, you're going you're gonna to lose your focus. You can't do everything. Number two, David, making a house for me at this point would send the wrong signal. I don't need a house. I've never had a house. I've never asked for a house. In some ways, that would just send the signal that faith, the God part, belongs to the religious sphere. I am the Lord over everything. There will be a time and a place, but not now and not by you. And number three, the big reason God gives, the big point of this chapter is this. God says, David, you want to build me a house, and I know your heart is right. But let's talk about house for a bit. What I want you to be known for, for the rest of history, is not about the house that you built for me, but about the house that I am building for you and through you. And it's in this covenant of God with David that God further clarifies his promise from Genesis 3.15 about a seed of a woman who will crush the head of Satan. His promise to Noah that never again Will he flood the earth in judgment? His promise to Abraham that this will come from, uh, uh, that a seed of Abraham will be a blessing to the whole world. And now to David, David, from your house, from your line, I will build a house, a people over whom I will reign with your descendant, in whom I will dwell as a house not made with hands. David, I have much bigger plans for you than for you to build a house for me. I am building a house for you that will last forever and one day will rule over everything. Well, obviously, this passage alludes to the temple that Samuel will, or that uh, Saul's, uh, David's son Solomon will build, but it's also pointing ahead to David's greater son, right? Jesus. What does this tell us about the God who says no, why God says no, how God says no? God says no 
not only to help me see a bigger yes to him. God says no to help me see his way bigger yes to me. A yes that is far bigger than our dreams, far grander than our plans, far superior to our desires and demands. Which leads us to another reason David was not the right guy to build the house. We don't read it in 2 Samuel because, or in 2 Samuel, because 2 Samuel records what God told Nathan to tell David. In some way, we don't know how or when. It's sometime later. But in the book of 1 Chronicles, as we come to the time the temple is to be built by Solomon, David's about to pass on the plans, and he reveals to his son Solomon what else God told him about why he is not the guy to build the house. Listen to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning at verse 7. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So is this saying that David's shedding of blood was wrong? No. But you've got to wonder if what it's saying, especially in light of the blood sacrifices that will be made in that temple, and how this is pointing to the greater David, not just Solomon, you've got to wonder if what God is saying to David is that it is not your military victories, it is not your battles and your wins that my people well, because of those that my people will have your presence. The shedding of blood to which the sacrifices of this temple will point have nothing to do with what I do to become part of the house of God. They have everything to do with the shedding of Jesus' blood and what it will do for you. Many centuries later, the final week of Jesus' life begins with Jesus entering the city of David, Jerusalem, in a parade with people bowing down to him as king, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They believed he was that, but they even had no idea that he would become that by absorbing in himself all of the consequences of my nose to God so that God can say yes to me. What this story points to is what Paul learned as he gave his heart to Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As surely as God is faithful, our message is to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus Christ, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. If everything we heard in life was yes, we wouldn't need Jesus. We would, be, we would have no need for God's bigger yes. 
And sometimes what we need to see that it's in the no's of life. Maybe even through a no from God. That, that God is trying to show us, I have a much bigger yes for you than what you are kicking against, what you are losing, what you are demanding, what you are doing because you can to try and feel a yes from God. It's not going to work for the long term. You'll only find other things that you think you need, other people that are blocking your goals. Sometimes God says no, simply so that you will turn your eyes in a new kind of way on Jesus, his ultimate yes to you. Why does God say no? God says no to get to yes. My deeper yes to him and his bigger yes to me. So let's talk for a few seconds about COVID season. It's been a whole year of no, hasn't it? I've said many times that I hope that I learn what God wants me to learn through this season rather than whining about what I can't do, demanding that things open up, asserting my rights. What would happen in our hearts, in our families, in our community, in our world, if people who are called by God's name would see this season simply as an extended period of time where we accept the no as a no from God so that we can see how big is yes to us really is in Jesus. Isaiah prophet, the prophet, put it this way in chapter 30. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says in repentance. In turning from our demands, our wills, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength but you would have none of it. Let's not let that be said about us, okay? Lord God, we confess that so easily we react to no. We find ways around what might be a no. And Father, I pray that, that you will help each of us realize ways in which we can say a much deeper yes to you through this time. And that we might see ways in which Jesus, even though we can't be together with people and even though we don't have the props that we usually use to discover you and see you, to see ways in which Jesus is God's complete and full and final and, and everything we need as a yes to us. Thank you. Jesus. Amen.